Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Breast implants, whether for cosmetic aesthetic purposes or reconstructive after cancer, have been a mainstay for plastic surgery for over 50 years. And during that period, great improvements have been made in their construction and in the procedures for their surgical placement. But implants have had a roller coaster ride of notoriety throughout their time, with worries about silicone issues and rare lymphoma occurrence, not to mention more mundane issues like capsular contracture and rupture. And more recently, the question of breast implant illness, or BII, is a real concern, warranting further examination of this ill-defined issue. So with implants, how do we know what the risk is and whether to worry? Well, like all great information and discoveries, good scientific study is the key. But quality science takes time. In this episode, we speak with someone at the forefront of these issues and who is currently involved in such scientific study. Dr. Patricia McGuire is a board-certified plastic surgeon in St. Louis with Parkrest Plastic Surgery, and she shares her wisdom with us during this interview. Let's take a listen now. I am happy to welcome Dr. Patricia McGuire to our breast implant discussion today. In addition to having a busy private practice at Parkrest Plastic Surgery in St. Louis, Dr. McGuire is a clinical instructor of surgery at Washington University, and she's a member of National Plastic Surgery Boards focused on research and patient safety. She has a long list of many other professional accomplishments, including serving on expert panels and giving lectures to her colleagues at national meetings. Most recently, she received a large grant to study the concept of breast implant illness. Welcome, Dr. McGuire. Thank you, Dina. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Uh, You know, I asked you to be a guest on this podcast because you have become somewhat of a national expert on breast implant concerns. But could you first tell the listeners what the scope of your surgical practice is currently? The majority of my practice is cosmetic and reconstructive breast surgery. How important have implants been to your, or really any plastic surgeon's, ability to achieve good results in breast reconstruction? Yeah, we've seen more and more... um, implants used in reconstruction. It kind of ebbs and flows with concerns about implants. I went into practice in 1991, and in January of 1992 was when the FDA issued its moratorium on the use of silicone gel breast implants. So uh, uh, that directly impacted us in practice. We uh, didn't use many implants for a few years, 
And then in 1999, when the Institute of Medicine report came out on the safety of silicone implants and showed no direct link could be found between implants and any disease, things built back up again. Then we had the scares of lymphoma being associated with breast implants and these women who have systemic symptoms uh, that they attribute to their implants. So it kind of comes and goes. But it has to be part of the options for women who don't want to have lap surgery, you know, incisions in other parts of their body, uh, loss of muscle, tissues being moved around. So it needs to be at least an option for patients. And uh, many patients have done very well. I mean, I follow all of my patients. I have patients I've been taking care of for 30 years and oh, have done very great. well with it. Yeah. And so just to clarify, flap surgery for our listeners means basically taking sections of tissue, flesh tissue, and rearranging them to create a breast out of it. And that usually involves additional incisions, additional area on the body that has to heal, and it lengthens the recovery time. Yeah, it can. It depends on the procedure, what's being done. Uh, The advantage of an implant is that No new incisions. The incisions that are already being made for the mastectomy will be used for the uh, placement of an implant. The disadvantage of an implant is you're putting something in the body that doesn't belong there. They're man-made things. They don't last forever. So they will need surgery again at some point in their life. So they have to always, on every surgical procedure, weigh the risks and the benefits. And in your practice, you use implants to rejuvenate or enhance breasts as well. Right. We also do breast augmentations uh, of patients, you know, and things like congenital asymmetry, uh, young women that have breasts that don't develop appropriately. So there's a lot of different options for implants. And you touched a little bit on the concept of replacing implants periodically. Do you give your patients a set time for that, or do you just play it by ear, see how they do? Yeah, you see a lot of patients say, oh, every 10 years I have to have my implants replaced. And I don't believe that is a you know set in stone. You know, I always tell patients we don't have to synchronize our watches, and in ten years and five minutes That's after right. I put your implants in, <laughs> yeah. we have to take them out. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Is kind of my uh, yeah. mantra on this. But you also have to take into account you know, if you have a gel implant, it is easier to replace a non-ruptured gel implant than a ruptured gel implant. So there's something to be said for preemptively doing things. But I also uh, follow my patients, you know, early on every other year as implants get older, five years or longer. I like to see my patients uh, every year. We added high-resolution ultrasound into our practice um, oh, that, three years that. ago. And that's been probably the best piece of technology I've added to my practice. Now with the newer implants, with the better made shells, the consistency of the gel, we can do a very good job evaluating our patients' implants. And uh, I don't know now what I would do without ultrasound in my practice because it allows me to see a patient. You know, I saw a patient with 15-year-old implants that I've seen every year. She did not want to change out her implants. And last year, implants looked fine. I did an ultrasound on, uh, um, yesterday in the office on her. One of her implants looks like it's leaking. So we know we've caught this relatively early, and um, now she knows the decision has been made. She's going to be having surgery. So ultrasound is a huge advantage. And so just to clarify again, the ultrasound uses sound waves to create an image of the implant, and you're looking for any breaks or imperfections in the shell that would suggest rupture. And do you have a set time of uh, how often you advise patients to have imaging or some other test to check for ruptures if they have a silicone implant? 
Yeah, the FDA had recommended that patients get an MRI three years after their implants are placed and every other year after that. Patients don't do that because insurance, and for the cosmetic patients, insurance doesn't pay for it. Even the reconstruction patients, if they're not having any problems, most insurance companies will not cover the cost. And very few patients want to spend a couple thousand dollars to tell them their implants are fine. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, I was at the FDA device hearings in March of 2019, and that was one of the concerns the FDA had. They said patients aren't getting these MRIs. So the recommendations by both the uh, Aesthetic Society and the American Society of Plastic Surgeons was high-resolution ultrasound. It's less expensive. It's easier to do. You don't have to worry about claustrophobia. You don't have to worry if they have any clips or any metal in their body with it. Yeah, you're not exposing the breast to radiation. Um, and for those of us who have it in our office, it makes it very easy for the patients to come in. It makes them much more likely to come in for their follow-up visits because they're getting some value for that. And in the guidance documents that just came out in October of 2021, the FDA changed their recommendation for an MRI at three years to either an MRI or high-resolution ultrasound oh, at five years great. and every two to three years after that, which is much more doable for patients. Yeah. And I think it's going to really improve follow-up. It's going to really improve surveillance of implants with time. And for the patients out there whose physicians do not have an ultrasound machine in the office, they can typically get that exam done at any hospital or freestanding facility. Yeah, most of all the radiologists can do it. Yeah, the breast imaging centers are very good at that um, as well. Wonderful. And, you know, we touched on this just a little bit. You mentioned earlier, but is there still concern about silicone implants? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, we talked about the FDA uh, moratorium in 1992. Implants were actually not reapproved for use by the FDA until 2006. That's when they came back on the market. The silicone implants. The so. silicone gel implants, yes. Saline implants were available throughout that time as well. But there were still kind of lingering concerns about implants. You know, then in like 2011, 2012, we started having reports of a lymphoma being reported in patients who have textured surface implants. And that kind of bubbled things up and concerns are back again with women concerned about autoimmune diseases and um, women with systemic symptoms that they attribute to their implants. You talked about earlier breast implant illness. So there are still concerns about implants, and I think there always will be. Uh, Let's talk about that lymphoma a little bit. What is ALCL briefly, and how common is it? Uh, Breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is referred to as ALCL or BIA-ALCL, is a fourth type of anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And it has been found in the breast of women who have textured surface implants. And that's probably the most important point in this. Although there are women who presented with this that had a smooth implant at the time of diagnosis, and that's the surface of the implant. So it's uh, kind of a fuzzy surface, like the right. soft side of Velcro. You're right. And there are women who presented with a smooth implant, but they all had a previous history of a textured surface implant. Having so been the, in, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's been no case of a purely smooth implant where a patient had any other implant before. All implants have been associated with textured surface implants. And the rougher the surface of the implant, the more aggressively textured the surface the higher the risk seems to be. So uh, there was a recall of biocell implants, which was Allergan's textured surface implant. Now, why do we use textured implants? For implants that have like a teardrop shape, those are implants, if they would rotate or move, it could distort the appearance of the breast. So that anatomic shape, yeah. So the 
texturing helps hold the implant in place. So I used a lot of textured surface implants. I really liked them for breast reconstruction, but I stopped using them in 2016 when the risk went from in um, like 2013, the risk was like one in a million. 2014, it went to one in 500,000. Then it went to one in 30,000. Now the risk is probably around one in 2200. I published a paper in uh, PRS in 2017 that reported the risk with biocell implants being about one in 2200. It stayed about at that range. So that means even when with textured surface implants, 99.9% of them, it's unlikely to develop this lymphoma, but it is a possibility. And to me, elective Mm -hmm. surgery and any risk of cancer, it's just not worth any benefit of those implants. Understandable. So you're saying the people at highest risk are those with textured implants. Uh, Do you think there is a role at all for textured implants in treating patients? Yeah, I I honestly don't believe there is. I think now that we have fat grafting, we have um, other technology that can help put shape in the breast. The reason I like textured implants is we can put shape where where it wanted to be. For a cancer patient, they needed more right. shape at the bottom, and that's how those were. Now we can do fat grafting and um, get that shape you know, with other ways without having to have this risk. So, no, I honestly don't believe textured implants should be used. Now, the Europeans use a lot of polyurethane implants, which is a different type of texturing. Some brands of this have been associated with ALCL, but others have a very low risk. But to me, I think the risk is just not worth the benefit. And... If there is anyone listening who has textured implants in place, could you explain how the ALCL typically presents or what they might experience that might tip them off that, hey, something's maybe wrong here? Yeah, the most common presenting symptom is swelling of the breast. I've seen one case of it. A patient said she thought she'd pulled a muscle. Her breast felt a little bit tight on a Thursday. Just one side? One side, yeah. She called our office, um, said she thought her breast was swollen. Um, she came in. We did an ultrasound. The ultrasound showed fluid around the implant. We put a needle using the ultrasound to guide us into the space around the implant, drew the fluid off, sent it to the pathologist, and tumor cells were seen. So if a patient has any change in her breast uh, that has a textured surface implant, or really any implant, they need to be evaluated by someone who knows how to appropriately evaluate patients. The most common presentation is swelling, but there's also has been hardening of the breast, capsular contraction, where the breast feels tighter and harder on one side. Patients have presented with rashes on the breast. There have been patients that presented with a variety of symptoms, you know, fatigue, night sweats, but any change needs to be evaluated. The first step is an ultrasound because fluid is the most common presentation. Um, if that doesn't show anything, MRI can be considered, PET scans, which looks for uh, tumor cells. And once the diagnosis has been made, the patients should have a PET scan to better evaluate the spread of the tumor. And then once the ALCL lymphoma has been diagnosed, how is it treated? Yeah, so the first thing once there's been a diagnosis is to get a PET scan to determine the extent of the tumor. And uh, first line of treatment um, on early stages, stage one or stage two, is surgery. Complete removal of the implant and the surrounding implant capsule, which is the scar tissue that forms around the implant, can be curative on patients with early stage tumor. For more advanced tumors, it can be treated with chemotherapy, radiation has been used. But the key on this is early diagnosis. 
the earlier this is diagnosed, the better these patients will do. I think all these patients should be treated somewhere where they're uh, experienced with treating uh, breast implant-associated lymphoma. They should be seen by a uh, plastic surgeon, by a medical oncologist who is experienced with treatment of lymphoma. You have to have pathologists who know how to appropriately evaluate the specimen. These specimens have to be oriented appropriately. The entire capsule has to be examined to determine how far the tumor may have spread through the implant. So that's the key, is appropriate diagnosis. And I heard a really good talk at the Atlanta Breast Meeting a couple weeks ago by Dr. Mark Clemens from uh, MD Anderson. And he talked about things that are commonly, you know, mistakes that are made on these patients. And it's Failure to, you know, a patient comes in with a swollen breast and they say, I want my implants out. And a doctor will just, well, I'm going to take the implants and the capsule out anyway. I'm not going to make the diagnosis ahead of time. That's a mistake. You know, these patients have to have an appropriate diagnosis prior to surgery. They have to have a PET scan. They have to be um, in a, you know, be seen by an oncologist and be appropriately evaluated. Then he said, you know, not sending the tissue off for appropriate evaluation, um, not having uh, medical appropriate medical treatment, not having getting a PET scan beforehand. Um, so you know, if these patients are treated appropriately early stage, they do well. But you know, there are a lot of women who weren't appropriately treated, especially mm-hmm. when we didn't know what we were yeah. doing with this that their disease would progress. Yeah, missed opportunities. Right, yeah. right. Well, now what happens if it goes untreated? Page uh, thirty-five patients have died from this. Um, 35 out of how many diagnoses do you think? Well, there, there have been, I think, 1,100, around 1,100, 1,200 diagnosed patients in mm-hmm. the world. And that's oh, of gosh. millions of women with implants. So, you know, put it into perspective. But it's a serious disease that has to be taken appropriately. There's a lot of research going on on this. And it's something that doesn't just occur in breast implants. There have been gluteal implants. This has occurred, dental implants. So it's a foreign body causing some sort of an inflammatory process. They think there may be a genetic predisposition to this. Some people think bacteria may be involved in it. So it's a complicated process that um, there's a lot of research going on for now. Well, that's a great point that despite all the bad things that can happen as a result, if it is paid attention to early on and caught early on, it can be very treatable and curative. Yeah, and the patients have to be their own advocate because if they go to their gynecologist or their family practitioner who may have never heard of this because it's still a uh, an unusual disease. Still kind of new. Yeah, they may not get appropriately treated. So the patients have to be aware. And um, you know, we contacted all of our patients. We sent letters out who had textured implants, invited them to come in to the office. We could evaluate them, do an ultrasound, and made them aware of what they need to do. Now, the FDA is not recommending women with textured implants have their implants removed. They're not recommending anything other than regular follow-up, um, you know, yearly evaluation. Yeah. yeah. And then sooner if they develop any other symptoms. Does that partially explain the new black box warning that is on implant packaging now? Yeah, it's actually the correct term is a box warning. The box warning contains three things. The first is that implants are not lifetime devices. And I think that's a good thing for women to know is that you're, you're putting something in your body that doesn't belong there. It's a man-made thing. Nothing man-made lasts forever. So they will need surgery again at some point in their life. So they need to regularly follow up with their doctor. The second uh, thing in the box warning is ALCL. That's for women with textured implants. 
there's been some discussion is should that be in the uh, uh, a box warning for smooth implants? I believe it should because I think there are women who may have had a textured implant in the past yes. that they didn't realize uh, that I don't think it's going to hurt anything to leave that in there. And then the third um, item in the box warning is systemic symptoms. There are women who have implants that have developed a variety of systemic symptoms they attribute to their implants. In the box warning, it says we don't have any link to this. But some women will improve, their symptoms may improve after their implants are removed. Well, that's a, a good place for us to move on to breast implant illness. Could you explain for the listeners what that is? And given that, is there a test or a screen for it? Yeah, breast implant illness refers to a variety of symptoms that are reported by women that they attribute to their implants. Many of these women have had extensive medical workups and nobody can find anything wrong with them. They can't explain why their symptoms, their labs are normal, their physical exam is normal. And they, they're very frustrated, uh, very frightened, you know, because no one can tell them what's wrong with them. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. There are no current diagnostic criteria and it's difficult. There are over 100 different symptoms reported, no specific configuration. This would be a lot easier if they all had the same five symptoms yes, to tie exactly. a bow around it and say, here, yeah, here we done. go, here's yeah. what it is. The other problem is these are symptoms that are not uncommon. I testified at the FDA device hearing that my identical twin sister has breast implants and I do not. And she had a list of a lot of the symptoms these patients have. She's more tired than she used to be. It's harder to keep her weight off. You know, her back hurts sometimes, uh, her eyes are dry sometimes, she can't remember things like she used to. And, uh, but then I looked at my own symptoms as a 60-year-old postmenopausal woman. I have a lot of those symptoms, and I've never had a breast implant. So the most important thing, when I see a patient that comes in with this, and a lot of them, because they can't figure out what's gone, they go to the internet, they find there's a lot of social media groups for this, and they come in with these, and it's like, oh, I finally found the answer, you know, it's my breast implants. So the first thing that I do is listen to their symptoms. What workup have they had? I don't want to miss something. You know, I had a patient who had pretty significant symptoms. We did preoperative labs on her. She had an elevated calcium. It ended up she had hyperparathyroidism. Oh, goodness. And when that was treated, her symptoms went away. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Dr. Melinda Hawes in Nashville, had a patient come in two years after her implant, was losing weight. She was tired. She was having abdominal pain. Um, her eyes were dry. She had multiple symptoms. Well, it ended up, she had labs on her and she had elevated liver function tests, her bilirubin room was elevated, ended up she had metastatic liver cancer. Oh my goodness. And she, you know, she thought it was from her implant. Yeah. So it's really important that an appropriate workup has been done prior, I just had a paper published in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal on our recommendations for working up these patients prior to undergoing surgery. Now, if everything comes back normal and then you have to talk to the patient, well, you know, we can take out your implants. Will you get better? Well, in this, the study that we just published um, in January of this year in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal was our prospective blinded study with controls looking at women with systemic symptoms they attribute to their implants with two control groups, women who have implants who don't have systemic symptoms attributed to their implants undergoing removal or replacement, and then our third cohort were women who'd never had any implanted medical device undergoing a cosmetic mastopexy. So we looked at their symptoms before surgery, three to six weeks, six months, and one year post-op. We drew blood on them before surgery, looking at cytokines, which are how cells communicate with each other. 
We looked at um, antibodies to bacterial toxins because what kind of made sense to me is could this be a subclinical infection around the implant on these patients? We looked at vitamin D levels, thyroid function, inflammatory markers, and then we sent the capsule, the tissue around the implant for evaluation for heavy metals. If you go on these, uh, the breast implant illness, social media groups and websites, they think it's heavy metals from the implants that are getting into their body that are causing these symptoms. And no one had ever looked at that before. And we had talked to, before we did our study, some of our breast implant illness patients are the advocates for them. And we talked to an immunologist at Johns Hopkins. We had two pathologists from Brown University. We had the pathologist who described cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma, who's done a lot of skin um, related. Yeah. Yeah. um, Who's done a lot of research on benign and malignant seromas or fluid around implants. He had some ideas. And then we had a PhD toxicologist looking into it. And what we found was these patients do get better when you remove their implants through six months of follow-up. And we had 98% follow-up at six months. We had a 68% reduction in symptoms in these patients. So then the surgery is an appropriate treatment for these patients as, as long as they're appropriately consented before they understand the ramifications. Now, what most of the patients believe on these sites is that surrounding capsule the scar tissue around it also has to be removed. They think whatever toxins are coming out of the implant are in that capsule, and that also has to be removed. Well, as you know, having operated on these people, it's not always easy to get that capsule out. If it's really thin, if it's under the muscle, there's high risk. tissues. Right, if it's stuck to the ribs, we don't want to collapse the patient's lung. We don't want to cause deformities by trying to get all this tissue out. And and there was actually a paper that's going to be published in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal. It's ahead of print now that showed that taking out the capsule doubles the risk of having surgery. Of having additional surgery, having complications. Having complications was more common. What our paper showed was that 94% of our patients did have symptom improvement, but it didn't matter whether we removed the whole capsule or part of the capsule. So I think it's good news for these patients is that, you know, we we showed them that, yeah, what they have is real. Their symptoms do get better after their implants have been removed. Now, is it directly caused by their implants? That's what we're looking at further with analysis for the heavy metals, looking at this bacteria, looking at the cytokines. Uh, We also had a clinical psychologist as part of this. We used an NIH-validated patient-reported outcome measures on anxiety, uh, fatigue, sleep disturbance, and cognitive function on these patients. And their symptoms were much higher than the two control groups. They came down significantly, but never to normal levels. Their anxiety levels were way up off the charts. They normalized after implant removal, but never to the level of the two control groups. So is there an anxiety component to this? And then you get into chicken versus the egg, you know? Mm -hmm. Did the implant cause the anxiety? Did the anxiety cause they're concerned about the implant, which could lead into this? And that's why we also wanted to do the uh, biospecimen study, you know, looking at tissues to see are there quantitative differences, you know, measurable differences that we can see between these two groups. And right now we're working on our heavy metals paper. And then after that will be the paper on the bacterial analysis of the capsules, the cytokines and the enterotoxin antibody data. Those are all good avenues to pursue. And let me ask, what is the thinking about how the heavy metals would actually be present? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. If you go to the FDA's website and look at the uh, summary of safety and effectiveness data 
for each implant manufacturer and each implant, it'll say the list of ingredients, you know, what's put into making it. And then you'll see a heavy metal list. It'll say arsenic, barium, beryllium, thallium, platinum, all these different things. It's insinuated these are ingredients, like they, they're all mixed up into it. And actually, they're not. All medical devices have to undergo very specific testing by the FDA regulations. So they will take a tissue and they'll incinerate it or they'll dissolve it in acid. So they'll take what's left over and it'll show what chemicals are in there, most of which are listed in non-detectable or well within what's considered safe exposure levels, what's less than what's in drinking water. I mean, if you took a piece of my skin and subjected to that test, because we're all exposed to environmental toxins all the time. And I will say we did find metals in the capsules. We did find some that were a little bit higher in the symptomatic patients versus the cohorts, but actually we found higher levels in the breast tissue of the patients who never had any implanted medical device. Really? Yeah. So that was, you know, we did that kind of as a last minute. It's like, you know, we need to see what's in normal breast tissue. So there was higher levels. There was like three times as much arsenic in the breast tissue of the control subjects than there was in the capsules so of the breast implant illness patients. Higher in the person who's never had an implant compared to the one who did have an implant and is symptomatic. Yeah, then we also looked at how else are we exposed to these toxins? You know, if, how are you exposed to arsenic? How are you exposed to, you know, uh, zinc? How are you exposed to whatever? And we found that in our breast implant illness cohort, we did have a higher incidence of smoking, former smoking, marijuana use, which, believe it or not, does have significant toxins associated with mm. it because it's not well regulated yet. Tattoo ink. Oh, interesting. You know, 96% of tattoo ink has significant toxins in it, and our breast implant illness patients had a statistically significantly higher level of tattoos. Interesting. I never thought of that. The other thing that's one of the highest exposures to arsenic is rice. Really? And patients on a gluten-free diet may have a higher rice intake, and we found that our breast implant illness patients had a statistically significantly higher report of gluten intolerance. So the last one is water supply. Different parts of the country have higher levels of exposure to different toxins. And some of the patients that had higher levels of uh, some of these metals, we looked at the drinking water in their area. And we found that the patients that had some of the higher levels of um, arsenic, let's say, were in areas where the drinking water has higher levels of arsenic. So some of this can be explained by environmental exposure as well. Now, the one ingredient metal is platinum. Platinum is used as a catalyst in high temperature vulcanization, which is what they use to cure the outside capsules of the implants. Interestingly, 64% of the patients in our breast implant illness cohort had saline implants, not silicone gel implants. Mm -hmm. And saline implants does not use high temperature vulcanization of their shells they use room temperature vulcanization of the shell. So there's no platinum used except in the patch. That's uh, the only yes. part of it. And the, the measurement of the capsules, we only had two patients. There, any platinum was measured, and it was one in each cohort. Those were both gel implants, and the majority of our breast implant illness patients had smooth saline implants. Interesting. So the jury is still out, but you're doing some wonderful studies to help clarify what's really going on here. 
Yeah, it's it's been a uh, a lot of work. Yeah, I can imagine. But questions have to be answered. Absolutely. And I'm curious, the patients who underwent implant removal with or without taking out the capsule, uh, the so-called on-block removal, right. how long did they have symptom improvement? Did you go past several months? I mean, is it possible that some of these patients get symptoms recurring? So maybe it wasn't related to implant or what? what is the thinking there? Yeah, there have been studies that show that patients who have no abnormal labs, no physical findings, who think they're going to get better, 70% will have improvement of their symptoms. Patients who have like a high uh, positive ANA or rheumatoid factor, they may temporarily get better, then their symptoms will improve. And there's patients who have diagnosed autoimmune disease do not improve after implant removal. Now, I've had patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis get better after their implants removed. I have no explanation as to why that happened. The paper we just published was through six months follow-up, um, and we had 98% follow-up. Patients got better and stayed better. We now have um, 84% one-year follow-up, and we're going to reanalyze that data to see if the symptom improvement is uh, maintained after a year. Oh, that'll be very interesting. So have you found that with the increasing awareness of possible breast implant illness that you are doing more explantations, which means taking implants out, is that becoming much more common in your own practice? I see a lot of these patients because I think the patients know that I'm doing research on this. And, you know, even though my study, and I tell the patients it showed, I do not need to remove the implant in the entire capsule. Today, I remove the implant and the entire thin capsule on this patient just because you know, she's so worried about it. But right now, there's no scientific data that shows the need to do unblock capsulectomy, especially thin capsules and non-ruptured implants. And that's actually an improper term for benign procedure. Unblock should only be used for malignancy. Mm -hmm. We use the term total intact capsulectomy for our patients' implant and capsule removed together. And let me ask you about the implants themselves over the last couple of decades or so. Do you feel there have been new features or new ways of manufacturing the implants that have improved the implants, whether it's uh, maintaining integrity of the implant, less likely to rupture, or just in terms of safety in general? What are your thoughts about that? Well, when uh, I went into practice, implants were not well made. You know, late 80s, early 90s, the implants had, you know, wanted the implants to feel as soft as they could. So the implants then had very thin silicone shells filled with a very thin silicone gel. The gel was the consistency of oil. So you had these shells that would break easily. This oil would get out in the tissues, and it's a big mess. I took out 30-year-old implants last month and can't get all the gel out. You know, if you don't get that whole the implant and the capsule together, which that's one time where I really do try and get the implant and capsule together. Yeah, it's difficult. It can be a mess. It's like if you spill oil on the counter, you wipe, you wipe, you wipe, you can't get it out. Now, is silicone going to kill somebody? No, but you sure hate leaving anything in the body that doesn't belong there. So you spend a lot of time washing it out uh, afterwards. So the implants, when they came back on the market in 2006, that's what they found in the Institute of Medicine studies showed that no direct link could be found between breast implants and any defined autoimmune disease, but showed implants were not as well made as they could have been. So when they came back on the market then, they were thicker shells. You know, instead of one thin shell, there's layers of thin mm -hmm. shells, so the shells are stronger. And the gel, instead of being like oil, now it's more like jello. So you hear about cohesive or gummy-type implants. Um, 
now the the shelves were underfilled for a long time. Uh, they didn't have enough. You know, instead of filling the space 100%, they filled it like 70%. So there were folds and wrinkles, and they would rub against each other, and more likely to leak. Mm-hmm. So limb plants now are better shells. Um, the gel is more cohesive. It holds together better than it did before. But it's really the same gel. I mean, nothing has significantly changed. Now, there are some newer manufacturers outside of the U.S. Um, that are doing some studies that are pretty innovative with some changes um, on their implants. But those probably won't be available in the States for a few more years. But they're better than they were, but they're still not lifetime devices. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to go in with their eyes open. Yeah, I you think know, that's yeah, it's, it's, And you have to take responsibility, the patient does, Know what kind of implant you had. You know, keep your registration card. Both the uh, the Aesthetic Society has an uh, app that's called Aesthetic One. The uh, ASPS has the National Breast Implant Registry. Make sure your implants are registered with the manufacturer. Make sure you know what implant you have. Take a picture, put it on your camera. Aesthetic One, the Aesthetic Society's um, app, the patient gets an app, and as soon as I do the case, I scan the labels, the patient gets that registration form. So they will have, you know, everybody loses their information card. Nobody's going to lose their phone. That's right. You know, that's right. They will have that electronic record of their yeah, implant that's really um, nice. with them so they'll know what they have. And it's, it's important. Follow up with your doctor. You know, make sure you're going in for regular follow-ups. And everybody's busy. Everybody's got a lot of stuff going on. But, you know, it's really important that you follow up. And um, if you have a problem, you let your doctor know. Yeah. I used to tell my patients once a year, come back and see me. Is that about what you do? Yeah. Yeah. Yearly, every, you know, I get it. It's hard to come in. But yeah. now that we've been ultrasounding them, patients are really good about coming in every year. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like the listeners to know about breast implants or breast plastic surgery in general? You still feel like it's a worthwhile procedure? Yeah. I mean, some of the happiest patients I have are uh, breast implant patients. You know, I had a girl the other day who's completely flat chested. She had no self-esteem. You know, came in, comes in like a different person. After you know, surgery. She said, it's fun yeah. to, yeah, it's fun to get dressed. It's fun. You know, I just feel much more confident with my husband. You know, everything is just seems a lot better. But I also see the downside. You know, you see women who have implants that come in and they've had six operations by the time they get, you know, they had implants that were too big pocket was over dissected, you know, they got an infection, you know, afterwards. So, you know, there's great stories and there's disasters. Yeah, there's a balance. Now, fortunately, yeah, there's many more good stories than bad. And these women who have the breast implant illness patients are not crazy. You know, they have real symptoms. You know, they, uh, no one can tell them what's wrong and they deserve to be heard. You know, they've had things they're concerned about. And that's why we're doing the research that we're doing. We want to give them scientific answers. We don't want social media to be their source of medical information. That's the other thing we asked our patients in our study, their main source of medical information, the breast implant illness patients, 64%, it was social media. Oh my goodness. Where the other two cohorts, it was less than 5%. So we have to do better job as plastic surgeons on educating our patients and listening Mm -hmm. to them about their concerns and helping them understand their relation, it's a complicated relationship between their body and this implant, this foreign body. And I do think there are patients whose bodies don't like having a foreign body in them. Of any type, yeah. You know, their option is they need to take their implants out. Well, thank you, Dr. Patricia McGuire. This has been so enlightening for our listeners, and uh, I commend you for all you've been doing. This is wonderful research you're working on and so important and so needed. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. 
Thanks, Regina. It's good to see you. You too. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. Thank you.